Hello, history teachers of the world. Welcome to our very first episode of the EuroCleo podcast, Pastime Talking and Teaching History. My name is Andreas, and I'm here with Mike. We will be your hosts for this monthly podcast on the subject of teaching history. As Andreas already said, my name is Maike, and I'm a history teacher in the Netherlands. And I'm just a guy who works for EuroCleo. We are really excited to host this podcast for you, which we hope will be useful to you as a history educator. The aim of our podcast is to discuss topics and ideas, to inspire each other and to bring together the wonderful people that are part of this history teaching community. This podcast is an initiative of EuroCleo. If you like this podcast, you're in for a treat. We have more stuff that will interest you, such as blogs, webinars and conferences. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and visit our website at eurocleo.eu if you would like to know more. We have a very special guest for our first episode. Um, I thought we always have special guests, Maike. Okay, Andreas, I think that's enough with the promoting. Let's get to it because our guest for today is Professor Sam Weinberg. That's right. I remember how enthusiastic you were, Maike, when we got the confirmation that Professor Weinberg uh, would be joining the show. I was so happy about it because when I was in teacher education, we would often read papers written by Professor Weinberg. So for me, it feels like we're talking to a celebrity today. So we really got the rock star of history education on the pod today, didn't we? We definitely did. So let's go to the interview. Professor Weinberg, thank you so much for joining our podcast. Um, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing fine. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. So uh, for any of our listeners uh, who do not know you already, uh, Professor Weinberg, you are a professor of education at Stanford University and by courtesy also uh, of history and American studies. Your uh, research on digital literacy has had a great impact both in and outside of academia. Already in 2002, you published a book clearly advocating for a certain skill set being taught through the subject of history. In 2018, you published another book titled Why Learn History When It's Already on Your Phone to advocate the need for history education in this world of fast and fake news. So thank you again for, for joining us. I hope my introduction was, was comprehensive enough, but please let me know if I missed anything important of your latest research. That's absolutely fine. Okay, thank you so much uh, for being uh, with us here today. Actually, the first question is uh, also one that I would like to ask out of personal curiosity. Often uh, I tell other people or my colleagues that Twitter is one of the ways that I think uh, I get a lot of inspiration, a lot of my actual, actually professional development is coming from Twitter. And many people laugh at me and they don't really take it seriously. However, you actually communicate a lot also over Twitter. And could you maybe elaborate why you are doing so? I use, I use Twitter because the vast majority of work that academics do that actually could influence the public conversation never reaches that very public. And that problem is itself a multidimensional problem. Uh, university researchers tend to write in long, cumbersome sentences employing a great deal of professional jargon that basically allows them to talk to each other. But the minute that the, that, that kind of verbiage and those kinds of linguistic constructions are presented to ordinary school teachers, ordinary school teachers start to read it and try to run in the opposite direction as fast as they can. 
And so those of us who do work that actually is applicable to education have a responsibility. Our responsibility is dual. It's not like the professor of Sanskrit in the university or the professor of nuclear physics. We have a dual responsibility, a responsibility to create knowledge that upholds the standards of the academy, but at the same time, we have a constituency outside of the university, and that constituency are the teachers, the school children, the parents, the principals, the school inspectors, who rely upon up-to-date information that they can directly apply. And they do not read our professional journals. I barely read our professional journals. They're so poorly written. And okay. so what Twitter, what Twitter allows us to do is to formulate our thoughts in clear language with direct implications for how it might actually help someone who is teaching a group of 17-year-olds and wants to do it better. Thank you so much. So I, I think we should uh, encourage all of our listeners to also follow Professor Weinberg on Twitter, uh, because it, I can uh, say that it's indeed uh, very enlightening and, and inspiring as well. My, my Twitter handle for those interested listeners is at Sam Weinberg, S-A-M-W-I-N-E-B-U-R-G, all one word, and I'd be happy to have you follow me. We'll be sure to tag you in any communication we do about this podcast. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, and as Andreas already said in the introduction, in 2018, your book came out, Why Learn History When It's Already on Your Phone. And in that book, you once again, you kind of debunk the idea that history teaching is only about memorizing certain facts or dates, but that it's much more about the particular skill sets that students are learning by the subject of history. So would you uh, be able to explain the reasons for your research regarding history and the teaching of particularly history thinking skills? So the, the vast majority of students who are in our uh, secondary school history classes never go on to become professional historians. And in that sense, the teaching of history has a set of different purposes from, in comparison, the teaching of mathematics which in many cases is the prerequisite to higher order thinking in technical fields. So my son is a computer programmer. He needs matrix algebra. If he didn't have solid secondary school mathematics curricula, he would, he would be in a deeply problematic situation once he reached university. But the teaching of history if we, is not about a vocational goal. It's about a goal of creating citizens who have knowledge and skills that allow them to act effectively in a democracy. And so our goals are, vo are not vocational, but speak to the, the, the image of the citizen who can function effectively in a democratic society where speech is free and where there's a cacophony of voices in the marketplace. And there is no better training for that than to deal with the multiple voices and multiple perspectives that are in the history curriculum. So the singular voice of the textbook, the singular voice that tells an uncluttered, tidy national story that muffles the voices of competing stories is something that ill prepares a young person to deal with 
the range of voices and perspectives that that young person will be exposed to the minute they receive their diploma and enter into a free society as a citizen. And so, yes, history must endow us with ways of thinking and not just names and dates that we, uh, that we memorize and reproduce on a national examination. Now, that doesn't mean that knowledge isn't important. Of course, knowledge is important. But we can't have it both ways. We can't treat students as walking armamentariums, mini encyclopedias, at the same time as taking the time to cultivate ways of thinking that develop repeated measures, multiple examples, and not quick fixes or one-off lesson plans. To, to train the mind, to create habits of mind, is itself an intellectual challenge. Because really what we're talking about, and here I will violate my own point that I made earlier about using a big word, we're really talking about an epistemology, a theory of knowledge that, that a citizen needs to take in the world. And that, that, that epistemology is, why should I believe the claim that you're telling me? Now, we're not talking about something about a, a scientific experiment with, uh, with a, the, the molecules of a virus. We're talking about claims that politicians make about the effect of unemployment, about the nature of healthcare, where there is competing evidence, competing ways of framing that evidence, and we rely upon the intelligence of the everyday citizen to sort that through. If that citizen is ill-prepared to do that, we can start to see the disintegration of democratic thinking. Thank you very much. And I think that ties in very well with the work that Euroclio is doing and, and will continue to do uh, throughout this year and many years to come, of course. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, well, thank you for that. Um, I just, I want to follow up with a, a question more for you personally, perhaps, uh, because I think it's safe to say that your work has had a great impact on on how on the way history is is being taught and and we all uh take inspiration from it uh it's also created maybe some kind of a jargon that we that we use in the way of teaching history in fact and i just wanted to know if there's one particular element or application of your work that has made you particularly proud oh that's an interesting question um the sociologist robert k merton a famous sociologist uh, no longer with us, um, talked about the true measure of success of an academic. And he claimed the true measure of success of an academic is when an idea that a, a social scientist creates is no longer associated with that person's name and it enters into common parlance. It enters into the regular vocabulary. So Merton used the example of one of his own examples, that he coined the phrase self-fulfilling prophecy. Now, in the early years of that phrase, every time you saw it quoted in a scholarly publication, it came with parentheses after the phrase with his name, Merton, 1931, I believe is the, is the date of the original paper. But over time, it became decoupled from the name Robert Merton. And he called this phenomenon obliteration by incorporation. And he said, the removal of his name from the concept was the true version of success. That he had named a phenomenon that was ill-formed, 
but it became so useful to ordinary people that it became detached from a social science con uh, uh, context and just incorporated into everyday speech. And so I believe self-fulfilling prophecy is a term that probably appears in Dutch, it probably appears in German, I know that it appears in Hebrew, it obviously appears in English, and few people associate it with Merton. Now, far be it for me to say that I have accomplished anything of the likes of Robert K. Merton. But there was a phrase and a term that I did invent in many respects that was for its first years associated with my name. And it was, in, in many ways, what's in English is called a neologism, making up of a new word. So I made a, the, a, a gerund out of, the, out of the noun source and called it sourcing. Mm. And it originally appeared in my dissertation, which was published in 1991 in the Journal of Educational Psychology. And for the first few years, uh, when I would be cited in the scholarly literature, people would say sourcing and they would explain it a little bit and they would have parentheses, Weinberg, 1991. But now some 20 years later, no, 30 years later, some, some 30 years later, you will see the word sourcing and it has nothing to do with my name. It still has the general feeling of privileging the source, considering an information always in context of a source, thinking particularly in history, social science, that information does not come sourceless. It is always tied to a particular place, a particular person, a particular time. And to think of the information uh, without knowledge of the source is to violate the, the ways of thinking of the discipline. That you will find it's ubiquitous. It's in European research. It's in research in Qatar. It's in research in Latin America. And my name is invisible. And I see, I see that as, a, as my small contribution uh, to what Merton called obliteration by incorporation. That's a great contribution. And I, I think we've, I used the word very recently myself. So yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, that's a good, uh, that's a very I think good actually many listeners will think, hey, you know, I, I use that in my classroom or that's actually the way to go when we look at sources, but I never knew it came from Professor Weinberg. So we actually solved that mystery maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. So uh, I have another question and I, I, I apologize. It's, it's somewhat linked to what you perhaps explained before, um, but the Stanford History Education Group has a long track record of, of producing really great material for history teachers that, that many of our listeners surely have used already. Uh, online reasoning, uh, online civic reasoning is, is one example of those, those uh, materials that you produce. Um, but some might not see the sort of direct connection between history education and digital literacy. Uh, how, do you, how do you explain or how do you see that connection? There's an intimate connection between historical thinking and uh, the kind of thinking that we need to do on the internet. But the connection is not direct and it's actually more tricky than we might think. So typically the way that we deal with multiple sources in history is that we are dealing with them in some kind of paper and pencil format. Uh, Often in school contexts, we give kids texts that have been uh, annotated, texts that have been carefully culled and selected. Uh, 
And so we create these kinds of experiences for students to deal with, and, and in many ways they, they are scaffolded document sets that educators put together and students then try to find their way through these multiple texts and the contradictions and the places of corroboration among them. So you would think that that kind of preparation would lead directly to the kinds of skills students need to display in working through information on the internet. That is a mythology and it's very dangerous because it assumes that there is direct transfer between the ways that we've developed in reading print texts in an analog context to the challenges we face in a digital context. In fact, people who think that, that they can simply use their critical thinking skills developed in history and then immediately go into the internet and apply them often get into hot water and fail miserably. And we have research that shows that. We have research that shows very smart, intelligent historians with many books to their credit and professional prizes when put into an internet environment where they are not experts, where they are not working on Portuguese colonization of Brazil or the Meiji restoration in Japan or whatever their specialty is. And they have to evaluate a website because we tell them their child is being bullied at school and we want you to look at verified information for how to deal with adolescent bullying, things that they are approaching not as historians, but as citizens, we find that the things that they rely on when they are working with print texts no longer apply in a digital environment. For example, coming to a website that looks official, that has a scientific abstract, and professional references at the bottom of the, uh, bottom of the article to, our, to journals like pediatrics and things like that, Historians will typically go straight to those references and look at the reference and say, okay, I'm not an expert on this subject, but these seem to be authentic and credible references that anchor this article. What they don't realize is that on the internet, anybody can lift and paste references that have nothing to do or in fact directly contradict what it is that the main article is saying. So, to take the way that references are regarded in the New, G New England, a print journal, the New England Journal of Medicine, or the British journal Lancet, and to assume that that's the way they operate on the internet is something that will deeply, deeply confuse someone who doesn't realize that the internet plays by different rules. So obviously there is overlap between the ways of thinking that we cultivate in a disciplinary context. But there is a fundamental shift in the medium in which we are being exposed to information. The digital world plays by different rules from the analog rule, from the analog world. And the sooner we realize that, and the sooner we realize we must prepare students for the particular challenges of a digital world, we will be in much better position to solve the educational crisis of our time. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was a uh, very clear answer and also it ties in very nicely to the next question, namely those three steps that uh, Stanford History Education Group has developed in order to make 
people aware and I'm specifically not saying just students because I think teachers as well we are not native on the internet either so to make people aware of how to find uh, or how to check the reliability of sources there are these three steps that um, Stanford University came up with taking bearings lateral reading and click restraint so could you maybe briefly explain these three steps and also how did you find these three steps so that it's kind of the introduction uh, into our environment mm. of these these media literacy skills okay so first of all we've done extensive research on what adolescents do what uh university students at an elite university uh, University in California known as Stanford University, which rejects 95% of its applicants and is the most difficult university to be admitted to in the United States. And we've looked at uh, professional fact checkers as well as PhD academics. Uh, we've surveyed, our latest survey was of 3,447 students uh, in the United States who sat in front of a computer and we watched them and recorded what they did and we've analyzed those. So it's, a, it's based on a, a, a very broad data set of what people at a range of different ages with a range of different expertises do. So let's talk about taking bearing. Taking bearing is a metaphor. It, is, it, it comes from the, the world of hiking. It comes from what somebody with a compass does. Somebody with a compass takes bearing when they are hiking in an unknown forest. They move the bezel of the compass in order to direct where they wanna to go to a particular peak. And if it gets dark, they look at the angle, the, the, the degrees between pointing north and the, the, where the bezel pointed. And if, they, if the bezel pointed at 75 degrees, they have bearing and they can continue to move toward their peak even in complete darkness, as long as they have a flashlight that shines on their compass. Now, what does that mean on the internet? On the internet, when you come to a site that you're unfamiliar with, here is what the typical layperson does. Here is what the typical smart person does who thinks they're smarter than the internet. They say, I am a good reader. I got best examination scores. I know how to closely read and search for bias and propaganda, and I am smarter than the internet. And they will spend a great deal of time looking at a website, reading it almost as if it's a print text. A professional fact checker, and we've, we've examined fact checkers at the, at the most prestigious news organizations in the United States. I can't tell you their names, but if you think of prestigious worldwide news organizations between New York City and Washington DC, you would be right, but I can't tell you their names. These people, these fact checkers, take bearing in a completely different way. Landing in an unknown forest, landing on an unknown website, they first check their inner compass. And what does that look like on the, on the internet? It means that if you don't know where you've landed, you try to figure out where have I landed? And you do that by engaging in what we call lateral reading, which is the opposite way of reading that most people read the web. People put search terms in their Google, in their Google uh, uh, Omnibox, and they click on the first couple results, and they start to read. That's not what fat professional fact checkers do. 
they will search for something, they will land on a website that seems like it might provide verifiable information about, let's say, COVID-19, but they don't recognize the name of the organization. So they immediately open up multiple tabs across the horizontal screen, across the horizontal axis of their screen, in order to first get a fix on who it is that's telling me this information. That is lateral reading as opposed to vertical reading, which is to spend an inordinate amount of time on the first page that you land. Now, the third, the third way of, of the third major difference that we've observed, and this is based on research with professional fact checkers, is what we call click restraint. So many students, so many adults, so many of us impute a heavenly intelligence to Google. We believe that Google, like the gods, has all knowledge and is, um, is omnipotent. And so what many people do is they'll put terms in their search bar and they'll click, start clicking. They will engage in the opposite of click restraint. We call it promiscuous clicking. They will click, oh, this looks good, I'll click on that. Well, we all know that the first click is destiny. The first click is destiny. The first click often determines the next click and the click after that. What fact checkers do is they understand that when you enter search terms into your browser, the SERP, that's an acronym for the search engine results page, the page that you get, puts you in what's called an information neighborhood. And what they will do is the equivalent in historical thinking of trying to understand context. Now, when we think of context in history, we think of what are the contiguous events that happened with, oh, the invasion of Poland in 1939 by Germany. What else was going on at the time? What, and we'll start to think, what does context look like in the, in, in the framework of understanding a search result on the internet? What a professional hack, fact checker does is, rather than immediately clicking on the first result, he or she will step back and they will get a gestalt of the search engine results page, sometimes even scrolling to the second page of results without clicking anything in order to get a sense of where have I landed? What is this information neighborhood? Now, to really understand and benefit from click restraint, you have to know a little bit about the way the internet works. And this is something many students don't know. They don't know about how search engine optimization, SEO, uh, in many ways corrupts search results. Search engine optimization, and I hope our list, your listeners will look up the term and Google the term and go to Wikipedia. Search engine optimization is one of the biggest capitalistic enterprises that go on today. It's the coordinated gaming of search results in order to push your product or your position or your advocacy to the top of search results and your enemy's results to the bottom. So even if Google had a perfect way of ranking trustworthiness, unless they could eliminate search engine or optimization, you really shouldn't depend on it. And so that's the case. The click restraint is learning how to read the context of Google snippets of all of the information that's on the search engine result page in order to make a wise first click. That was a brief introduction of the three uh, 
steps, uh, taking Barron's lateral reading and click restraint and an explanation of how, how you develop those three steps. And I think a very important um, element to address is how do we teach this to our students? Because um, when students end up in high school, when often these kind of me media literacy skills are being taught, actually they already have quite a routine of how to maneuver on the internet. So would you maybe have some suggestions or ideas or tips or tools in how can we also European teachers uh, teach this to our kids? Well, first of all, let's, let's start off with naming the barriers. The barriers include one, students are facile in manipulating digital devices. They often know how to make a TikTok video and upload it and selfies to Instagram in ways that their teachers might not know. Okay, so we have a, a kind of appearance that forms a separation between students and teachers. But accompanying that separation is a conception that because students know how to manipulate a device, they also know how to analyze the information that that device yields. And that is the problem. So the first thing that we need to do is to create a crack in students' self-confidence that they are the experts. Because if we just start to tell them, you don't know how to do this, and you don't know how to do this, and research in America has shown that, and research in Australia has shown, they'll say, will sit there with their arms folded and they'll say, tell me something different. And they'll basically ignore whatever you have to say. So we have to come up with examples. The best way to get students' attention is first of all to show, show them how easily they're duped, how easily they're manipulated. And so to come up with a set of choice examples that they will think that they can immediately tell whether it's real or false. So here's an example. Um, you'll show them a meme of uh, bird, Australian birds that are arsonists, birds that purposely create fires in order to flush out their prey. Completely outlandish claim, completely crazy. And say, here's this, here's this meme. Is it true or false? And kids are going to say, ah, it's false. And you can show them that they're wrong that this actually is something, that there are arsonist birds, that there are, that's been documented by ethnologists in Australia. It's appeared in the National Geographic that birds in Australia partially contributed to the fires there by taking embers from a burning field, bringing them to a field that was not yet on fire and starting a fire in order to flush out prey. So the idea that you can just look at something and say it's true or false is stupid. And then you can show them things that might look true and you can show that they're false. So first, the first thing we need to do is to, is to rattle students' sense of stability so that they are the experts and to show them how easily they can be tricked by the sophisticated techniques that are on the internet. And that's what creates a motivation because no student wants to think of themselves as an easy mark by, uh, by somebody trying to deceive them. That's the way that we penetrate the armor of adolescent uh, 
arrogance. Um, and so once we've created that opening, we can show them really easy ways of quickly making sense on the internet. So for instance, they come across a scientific claim that says, I don't know, let's see the, the latest one, that chlorine dioxide, which is a, uh, a chemical that's used to purify swimming pools, is, a, is, a, is an, an antidote for cor the coronavirus. This is uh, something that on a, a Facebook post by a woman named Carrie Rivera went viral, nearly 200,000 shares before it was taken, taken down by Facebook. How would they verify it? How would they know? What steps would they take? Um, and students, students have been told, for instance, by many teachers, don't go to Wikipedia. Well, that's a real problem. The question is not, to, not whether or not to go to Wikipedia. Wikipedia, saying not to go to Wikipedia is like telling a carpenter, do not use a saw. If you are trying to find quick information in the internet era, the question is not whether you go to Wikipedia or not, it's the question is how do you use Wikipedia? And so real-time results and updating of Wikipedia entries have become incredibly sophisticated. And in this particular case, you would go to chlorine dioxide on Wikipedia, go immediately down to the references, and you will find three references, one from the Detroit Free News, one from the New York Times, and one from USA Today, which document and provide hyperlinks to people who've ended up in the hospital because they've ingested swimming pool cleaner. And so these are the, the ways that we can quickly help students. And, we need, and this cannot be turned into, I mean, obviously we could use, do a whole year course on effectively using the internet. And a lot of people say, all we need to do is to teach critical thinking in our schools. That is absolutely wrong. It's like saying, it's like, it's like giving students the keys to the car without first making sure that they know that they have to stop at a red sign. There are certain skills and behaviors that are basic before we get to critical thinking. Uh, I'll give you a few of them. Students, when they are looking through text on an internet site, will, will laboriously scroll through paragraph after paragraph looking for particular text. Many students who are on the internet all day don't realize that there's a macro control or command F that immediately locates the text in the website. Um, students will impute a great deal of power to the top level domain. A, a .org is supposedly better than a .com. Well, they need to understand that anyone, my dog sitting there, can obtain a .org a .org has been an open domain ever since the internet domains were created in the mid-1990s. If you have the money, you can get my dog is a beautiful .org, and I can set up a .org site saying, give money to support my beautiful dog. And just like there are many, many legitimate organizations, the Red Cross, the Sierra Club that are .orgs, we did a study of groups that were identified as hate groups. And we found 
that 49% of these groups that are identified by hate groups by the Southern Poverty Law Center carry the .org designation. So the idea that .org is an NGO or a do-good organization, we need to break that in kids' minds. They need to understand that right from the start. Many, many uh, web pages say, uh, for teaching de de uh, digital credibility, say go to the about page and look carefully at the about page to, sit, to learn about the organization. That makes about as much sense as looking at a friend's smiley Instagram feed and concluding that they lead a carefree, joyful life. Organizations curate their about page in the way that your friends curate their Instagram feed. We need to understand that and break kids of the notion that if you want to find out about an organization, their about page is often the worst place to go. So these are places to start before we give the kids the keys to drive on the information superhighway. Thank you. That I think everyone could hear some great tips um, Absolutely. from that um, particular um, part. Like for example, Wikipedia. We use, we should use Wikipedia. We just have to know how this Wikipedia works. We have to know more about the mechanism behind Wikipedia, but we can definitely use it. Control F um, for searching within a web page. Uh, .org, org. Uh, don't just take it for granted, but mm. do some research, but yeah. not on the about page. <laughs> let, me, let, me give, let me give you one more. In a time of, of, of fake and flimsy scientific evidence by someone who claims they're an expert and says that they are a, a virologist or an epidemiologist and they're very established and prestigious and they've done research, how many of your students know how to do a 30 second check of that person's credibility on Google Scholar. Somebody claiming to be an expert virologist who is a researcher, you, you go to Google Scholar. Many students don't even know what Google Scholar is, but you can get within a minute. If you go to, if someone claims they're an expert and they've done research and they published and you go to Google Scholar, and they have one publication from 1973, then I would worry about that person's credibility. That is a check that you can do in 15 seconds if you know how to do it. No critical thinking required. Thank you, yeah. I yeah, think. thank you so much for all these this tips. Uh, we, are, we are now sort of coming to an end, I think, with the time that we have, um, I'm afraid. So. Yeah, but I, I would just like to repeat what Mr. Uh, what uh, Professor Weinberg said because I think there are already two great activities in there that teachers can use uh, for cracking students' uh, self belief in with regard to their uh, ways on, on the internet. So, for example, giving a meme and let them uh, mm -hmm. trigger them basically, and also give them a thirty second tech, uh, test with checking the the. Um, reliability of, a, of, of, an, of someone who says that they're an expert. Um, I think those are great um, activities that, that were just mentioned and that are regardless of the context, uh, we can use that also here in Europe. Mm. Um, because some of the material that is on the Stanford History Education Group is very much focused on the uh, US uh, context. And, and maybe there's, there's a, a there's the intention to develop something for Europe as well, or? 
we would we would be happy to. But let me let me just say, uh, all our materials on our new site, cor.stanford.edu, Civic Online Reasoning. But it's the 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 URL is cor.stanford.edu. Our our materials <clears throat> our materials for navigating the internet, and they have uh, examples that have international applicability. Um, they are obviously in English, but they can be easily adapted in many different languages for many different contexts. They are completely free. Uh, they are uh, downloadable. They are adaptable. They are in the form of Google Documents, uh, the lesson plans that's, that teachers can change for their own context and fill in their own examples. We, have, we are doing work in India where we are using the same basic principles that we've developed, but simply changing the content that makes sense for an Indian audience. And it's working really well. So I suggest to all of your listeners to do the same. It's, we, we want to provide a service at a time of mass confusion. And this is the way that we think we can contribute. Thank you very much. Yeah. We will be sure to also add all the links that you have mentioned in right. the description of the podcast and uh, encourage all our listeners to, to check those resources out. And as you say, they are free and we have seen many of them and uh, they are really, really great. Yeah. So yeah. Thank, you. thank you so much for, for joining us, uh, Professor Weinberg. It was a real pleasure to hear you talk about your work and uh, we find it incredibly inspiring and we hope thank to you. hear more from you in the future as well. Yeah, thank you so My much pleasure. for joining us. My pleasure. Take care. So in this episode, we talked with Professor Weinberg about how history educators can and should play a role in preparing students to be responsible citizens in a democracy, in particular by teaching digital literacy skills. And these skills can be summarized in three steps, taking bearings, lateral reading, and click restraint. Thanks for listening. I hope you stay with us for the next episode.